Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. We're into uh, John chapter 17 this week under the uh, kind of the title of Getting Your Priorities Straight. We're going to just look at John 17, verses 20 through 26, and this is episode 44 of season one. Now, John 17, as you might know, is often referred to as like the Holy of Holies for the New Testament. It's this wonderful prayer of our Lord as it closes sort of the upper room discourse section of John's gospel and kind of precedes his coming agony in the shadows of Gethsemane, the kiss of betrayal by Judas the traitor, his arrest and the beginnings of his trials. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And in it, we can see into the inner thoughts of Jesus's mind and learn much about his relationship with the Father. It's often called his high priestly prayer when he talks to the Father in that deepest, most heartfelt way about us, about his followers. And in this prayer, it stretches across 20 centuries, includes us as well as the apostles who were with him that night. Now, John, I think, never forgot the scene in which this prayer was given. Uh, Jesus had left the upper room, as you know, with his disciples. They'd passed through the vineyards that surrounded Jerusalem. As Jesus paused somewhere along that route, uh, he probably picked up a vine. And as we've talked about, he taught them, saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And in the vineyard or maybe somewhere elsewhere along the way, in the bright Passover moonlight, it says that he lifted up his face to heaven. And he prayed aloud in the hearing of the disciples. Now, I can't possibly do justice to this great passage in just one podcast. That would be like taking a gallon bucket and trying to empty the Pacific Ocean. You know, you just can't do it. So I'd need at least three or four, even more podcasts to really do this chapter justice. So I regret that I can't dwell on all the details. And so I'm just going to focus in on verses 20 through 26. I encourage you to read through the whole chapter yourself, but I'm just going to look at those uh, six verses and specifically look at what Jesus says in this prayer as kind of an overall framework or structure for the way God wants us to look at our lives. Uh, Because developing an overarching theme uh, is a good way then to put all the different pieces of our lives together underneath it. So this is John 17, uh, verses 20 through 26, this great passage. And at the end of the prayer, he prays this. My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them.
You've probably heard the old story about the professor who stood in front of his class at the beginning of a semester with a big glass jar, and he filled it up with some big rocks. And then he said, how many of you think this jar is now full? And of course, one eager student said, sure, it's full. And then the professor put it down and reached under the table, got out a bag of gravel, he started pouring the gravel into the jar and shook it all around, and the gravel would work its way down through the cracks and all of a sudden, there was a lot of gravel in there, too. And he said to the class, now who says the jar is full? And they were starting to be a little suspicious, so they didn't say anything. And he said, well, let's do some more. And this time he got out a bag of sand and poured the sand in and shook it all around. And the sand worked its way between the gravel and the big rocks. And they could put uh, quite a bit of sand in there. And he said, okay, who now thinks this is full? And somebody said, probably not. And they were right. He brought out the water started pouring water into the jar and got almost an entire quart of water into the jar until it was finally near the top. And then he turned to the glass and he said, what is the point of this illustration? And one eager student said, the point is no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit some more things in. He said, no, that is not the point. The truth of this illustration is that if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. If you don't put the big, if you put the, if you put the sand in or the gravel in or the water in first, there won't be enough room to put the big rocks in later. And the same goes for life. If you spend all your energy and time on the small stuff, you'll never have room for the things that you say are really important to you. So he said, take care of the big rocks first, the things that really matter. These are your priorities. The rest is just gravel, sand, and water. Take care of the big rocks first, the things that really matter. What does God want the big rocks to be in your life and mine? I think that's the answer we get in John 17. Because Jesus knows this is his last night with the disciples. His prayer reflects those things that are closest to his heart, the things that are really important. His words are so intense, so powerful. Scripture says that, that eventually he literally sweats blood during his prayer. He prayed for himself, but he prayed for the disciples and for what was to come. And so in trying to determine what should really matter to us, if we're going to be his disciples, if we want to be real life followers of Jesus, we need to look at what really mattered to Jesus. It would make sense that we would think about that. So what are the big rock issues in Jesus's life reflected in this prayer? We get a clue as to what really matters by taking note of how Jesus prays here in John 17. Let's look specifically verse 23, because it really summarizes what was on Jesus's heart. Here Jesus prays about the three big rock issues that are actually repeated throughout the entire prayer in John 17. But in this one verse, they're all lumped together. So we'll make a, a really good summary of the entire prayer just by looking at verse 17. First, he uses the phrase, I in them. I'll read the whole verse back to you in verse 23. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The first phrase, I and them, Jesus is describing the relationship that he has not only with his disciples that night, but as he said at the beginning of the prayer, that this is a prayer for all disciples at all times who would eventually believe even after them all who might come to know him after that night. So you and I were included in this prayer. He will be present with them, in them, indwelling them. 
a personal relationship of love and of presence. That was uppermost. That was the, the, the uppermost thing in Jesus's mind that night as he prayed in the garden. His own personal relationship with those who have been committed to being his followers. That was his first big rock issue. His relationship with all of his disciples, including you. The second thing on Jesus's mind was the disciples' relationships with each other. He prays that they should be brought to complete unity. The second thing on Jesus' mind was the group of people that he was leaving behind to carry on his mission. This group was what was called the body of Christ, the church. And so his second big rock is all about his followers and how they are going to relate to each other once he is indwelling each of them through the Holy Spirit. And so the church is the second big rock priority and the importance of his church being able to function at its very best. Third thing on his mind that comes as a result of the first two. He says that the world will know. The world will know. If the first two things are happening right, then the world will know all about me, about my glory, about my love for them. This is how Jesus planned to have an impact in the wider world. It was through his indwelling of his followers in a unified, effective body that would then reflect his glory to the world around. These are Jesus's big rock priorities. They are his priorities for you and for me. And so why is this important? Well, if we want to have Jesus at work in us, changing us, then we need to align ourselves with what he's doing. It's not getting God to endorse our agenda. It's learning to place our agenda under his control. We have to have what scripture calls the mind of Christ. We begin to take on Jesus's thoughts, his values, his way of looking at the world. We take on his very life. He's dwelling in us. And he wants us to begin to look at the world, in a sense, through his eyes. So if we want to experience Christ in us, we consciously need to live life the way he wants us to. These priorities are his priorities. They help establish a framework for all of the rest of the Christian life that supports everything else. Every other issue, every other question, every other part of the Christian life experience, it's all going to fall under this framework of these three big rock priorities in our lives. And so this prayer gives us a framework to understand ourselves, to understand our relationship with Christ, to understand what it is we are supposed to be doing with the rest of us, our lives while we're in this world. These three priorities help us to have a Christ-like mindset. In other words, a Christian worldview, a filter through which we look at all of life that then guides our decisions, guides our thinking, our actions, helps us to focus our time and our energies and even our finances. It becomes a framework for all of life. So let me restate these three priorities for us. First of all, a progressive commitment to Jesus Christ. Secondly, a progressive commitment to the body of Christ, the church. And thirdly, a progressive commitment to the work of Christ in the world. So let's back up a moment. The big question in our relationship with Christ is this. How does Jesus actually bring change into a person's life? Well, first, Jesus calls us into this relationship with himself. That's where it all has to start. Through experiencing forgiveness of sins and grace, we surrender ourselves to Jesus as our Lord. And this is when we become a disciple, a fully committed follower of Jesus. Disciples are people who come to Jesus to get themselves together and then go in Jesus's name to the world 
and give themselves away. Let me say that again. We come to Jesus to get ourselves together, and then we go into the world in Jesus' name to give ourselves away. Secondly, disciples are people who use the Bible. First is their message book. It's the norm for all that we teach and believe. All our beliefs, all our theologies, everything we have about God, everything that we know about God, it all comes from the authority of Scripture. So that we use the Bible first as our message book, but also, secondly, as our method book. In the Bible, we find principles of living for every day. How God wants us to live out this theology in practical, day-to-day, nuts-and-bolts kinds of ways. A message book and a method book. And so we learn about God, but we also learn about God's principles for everyday life. And these three priorities give structure to God's biblical principles. That's why they're so important. They give us a framework of understanding all that the Bible teaches about God and about God's principles for living. So if we can really begin to grasp these priorities, it helps us so much in just kind of laying out the rest of our Christian life. That leads us to the next step for real change. Disciples are people who then live on the basis of biblical priorities. Disciples are people who live on the basis of these three biblical priorities. They actually live out the way Jesus wants us to live. My purpose for living should be reflected by my own priorities. If I'm a disciple, then I should desire to carry out the purposes of God in my life. These three priorities form our most important commitments. That's why I use the phrase progressive commitment, not progressive in any kind of political sense, but progressive because each of these priorities, they really represent a journey. It's not something you do once and it's done. No, the Christian life is much more complicated than that. And so we're always learning. We're always learning more about who we are. We're always learning more about who God is. And people you know, have said the Christian life is like climbing a mountain. To me, it's more like climbing a spiral staircase because I feel like I keep going over the same territory over and over again, but maybe at a different level, maybe at a higher level. But I feel that with the same issues, I'm, I'm dealing with the same things again and again in my life, perhaps in new or deeper or more important ways. But this is why God has us in a progressive relationship. It's moving. God is going to place us on a journey. So this is a progressive relationship. There's always going to be more to know. There's always going to be more to know. We are going to be unpacking all three of these priorities over our entire lives. It's never a once and done thing. So first, this progressive commitment to Christ. It simply means that we are to fall in in love with Jesus all over again each and every day. Fall in love with Jesus all over again each and every day. He's in us. That's what Jesus prayed that we would understand, that his presence is actually in us and we are in him because of the Holy Spirit. His prayer was that we would begin to see his glory more and more. Verse 24 says, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants us to see him for who he really is in all his glory, not some caricature that we have made up about Christ, not just one or two Bible stories, but to see Christ in all his wholeness, and in all his majesty now as the resurrected and exalted one. To help us really look at this one very essential priority of seeing Jesus for who he really is, 
You know, because if, if you've been stalled in your faith, if you felt kind of dry lately, if you haven't felt that kind of passion in your love for Christ, I hope, and I'm speaking to myself too, I hope that this year will be a year where we really kind of explode in our understanding of who Jesus is. And maybe we fall in love with him all over again, because that's the first priority, this progressive commitment to Jesus Christ. Secondly, a progressive commitment to the body of Christ. You know, Jesus never intended for us to fly solo. He puts us together with others. It's part of God's plan that we have to. We have to rub rub shoulders with others, with other imperfect people who are just like you and me. And that's why, you know, just online church, friends, you got to have more than that. You've got to have real life interpersonal relationships with other Christians because otherwise it's too easy just to wall ourselves off and not have to interact with these other imperfect people who are just like me. Because it's when we interact with others, that's when sparks fly. Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be in places where there's some friction so that it's going to rub us down a little bit in our sharp edges. And relationships are always a bit difficult because none of us is perfect. And we all have to learn how to do this thing called fellowship better. This unity, this oneness in Christ is supposed to be our greatest witness. Did you know that Jesus had unanswered prayers? At least they haven't been answered yet because the church is definitely not experiencing the kind of oneness that he's praying for here. Maybe it will. I'm sure it will eventually, eventually in the new kingdom. But on this earth, we have a sad example of of not being able to fulfill and answer Jesus's prayer this day. If there's any way in which the church has failed over the last 2,000 years, it's right here. Do you know that there are something like 75 different Baptist denominations? That's a lot. But before we get too cocky, let's remember there are 10 to 12 different Presbyterian denominations. You just go right on down the page and you got all the people who say, well, we're independent churches or we don't have a denomination. They're just as fractured as everybody else. We have done a great job of splintering rather than coming together in a unified way as Christ's body. I don't mean some kind of massive denominational or organizational structure. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a oneness that comes through relationships that are based on the Lordship of Christ. We have not been very good at that in the church worldwide. They have different names for gatherings of animals together. Did you know that? There's a herd of buffalo, a gaggle of geese, a pride of lions. Do you know what it is for vultures? It's called a meeting of vultures. And for many people, that's what the church is. It's just meetings. And a lot of them act like vultures too. It's things that we attend. And sometimes that's the way the church has acted. They just pick at each other. How many Christians are not in good relationship with other Christians right now because they've allowed some issue to pick apart the oneness of the body of Christ? And so they separate and they go their separate ways. And this does great damage to the witness. Why is the church so ineffective? Why is the church so weak in its witness? It's because we have not learned how to forgive. We've not learned how to uh, make amends. We have not learned how to say sorry. We let ego and pride and all kinds of other things separate us from each other. They just pick at each other. And then we just kind of leave the carcass in the middle of the desert. I hope somehow we as Christians can move beyond 
with a sense that the church is more than just meetings. And we move to a sense of the church actually being the true community that Jesus has called us to be. There is something more for us to discover in this thing called the body of Christ. And your family, folks, your family is a subset of the body of Christ. Throughout scripture, the family unit has always been important. Don't get me wrong. It's always, though, been in the context of the covenant people of God. To the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but also through the body of Christ in the New Testament. It's very important relationships are there in the family. But it's a subset of the body of Christ. And we should remember that, that everything that's said about the body of Christ should also be said about our families and vice versa. Third now, third priority, the work of Christ in the world. Jesus sends us to the world with this message of grace and love and justice and mercy. We're to reflect the kingdom of God to the rest of the earth around us, first of all, by having Christ in us, secondly, by being unified together in Christ, but then that's how God wants us to make a difference in the world around us. It's mainly through two different ways. First, through the evangelistic mandate to share the message about Jesus, but also what's called the cultural mandate, which means we're concerned about other issues besides just verbally proclaiming the gospel. We're concerned about practical needs of life and forming a culture that is God-honoring as well, and helping people understand how God wants this world to operate through ministries of justice and compassion, ministries of meeting practical human needs. And that's why churches should be involved in mission and go on mission trips. That's why churches should be involved locally in practical ministries of outreach and compassion. It's not just putting someone on a soapbox with a megaphone so they can share the gospel, but in practical ways to bring the gospel into reality in people's lives through serving and through being servants in our culture. We need all of those, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to his church, and a commitment to the work of Christ in the world. Because throughout church history, there's always been a tendency for people to focus on one of those three things and neglect the other two. But I really want us to see it as a three-legged stool. They all need to be working together to have a balanced, healthy Christian life. Because if you only focus on the first one, your own relationship with Christ, that leads to creating a lot of self-absorbed saints. People who are very deep, but it's like me and Jesus, and I don't care about the rest of the world. That's not a healthy way to understand what Jesus was trying to say. You don't know the real Jesus if it's just you and Christ alone. Because he's called you to do more than that. The other thing that can happen is you become focused only on Jesus. You can either become a self-absorbed saint or you become a Pharisee. Because if it's just you and Jesus, then what about all these other people? We tend to develop very critical attitudes about the rest. Other Christians, oh my, let me tell you about them. They're not right, and you think you are. And that's one of the most uh, dangerous things in the body of Christ, when we start labeling other Christians or we start looking down our noses at other Christians. That's the danger if we only focus on me and Jesus or my little circle in Jesus. We forget that there's a whole lot of other people out there who are trying to love Jesus imperfectly, just like we are. The second priority, if we only focus on being a part of the church, then it becomes kind of an ingrown click, a holy huddle. It's great for me. It's great for those on the inside. We feel great about it. We have good relationships. We love to support each other. But that's kind of like a cult, too. It's hard to get into. There are a lot of barriers to get through, and it's seen as being very exclusive and very off-putting if you're not on the inside. 
So people can't find a way to connect with the church when it's so insular like that. That leads to kind of a dead orthodoxy where people have all the right beliefs, but they are cold. They're cold with people who are on the outside. They put up a lot of barriers. They've lost their passion for the lost. They've lost their passion for the hurting world around them. And the church just becomes a dispenser of services. I ask people, why did they go to a certain church? Oh, they've got a good children's program. I go to that church because they have good music. Oh, we have a checklist. They've got good preaching. We all have these checklists of all the activities that we would like from our church, just like you want free checking from your bank. And so the church becomes a dispenser of services, and I judge the church depending on how my needs are being met. Instead of understanding that the church is your community, and it needs to be your primary community, and Christ has called you to forge relationships there, and to stick with those relationships, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even when there's hurt, to stick with those places where you've been planted so that you can actually work through the issues that have separated you. And in doing so, that's how we bring glory to Christ is when we learn how to forgive. That's how we bring glory to Christ when we learn how to mend those areas where we're tender and where we're bruised and where we need great healing. That's a big challenge for people within the church. The other thing that can happen if we only focus on the broad the, the body, it's not that it just becomes an ingrown click, but it becomes a place that attracts emotional parasites. It's just about us, and we end up attracting a lot of people who are sort of sponges because of their emotional neediness. They gravitate to churches. They bring their unhealthiness to churches. And that's okay to a degree, but I can't tell you how many churches have become sickly because of becoming so ingrown that they attract all these unhealthy emotional people inside their churches, and then they give them power. It becomes so dysfunctional and just kind of messy on the inside. That's what often leads to a church being so emotionally strangled that it begins to die. Because healthy people look at it and say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. They say, that's the last place I would want to go is that kind of church. Because you can tell when churches start to get unhealthy by the people that, ele that get elevated into places of leadership. So it either can become this ingrown click or a place that can really attract emotional parasites if all of what we do is to focus on ourselves. Third, if we only focus on trying to meet the needs of the world, people will either become angry social activists or they become very bitter prophets. Angry social activists, because they're trying to fix the world and the world can't be fixed. They're trying to fix every human need and it can't be done. And they get angry because they can't get the church to rally around their issue. They can't get it fixed and finalized and people don't see the world the way they do. And so they get angry at the church. They see famine in Africa. They see injustice. They see poverty. They see racism. And then they begin to lose their hope. They lose their hope in the church because they can't get everybody else to buy into their issue. They become, they become single focused in their issues and they lose track of their relationship with Christ and with the body. They become disenchanted with the ineffectiveness of the church or human institutions in general. They become angry and then they really have begun to lose their faith because their faith was really wrapped around solving an issue rather than seeing the glory of Christ. They can also become bitter prophets. They're the ones who thought they knew the right thing to do and the rest of the world just didn't follow them. So they ended up with this sense of futility. They could become very bitter towards the church. 
And it's it's okay that sometimes all of us might feel some bitterness to tro- before the, to, towards the church because the church has maybe hurt us in some way. Maybe it's hurt us by not backing us some area that we wanted it to work in or just didn't come through for us the way that we wanted the church to. But it's when people let that seed of bitterness grow. They lose their hope and then they lose a sense of grace in their lives and they become not just angry activists, but angry prophets. And they seem to be very judgmental towards the church and to others. And so they kind of drop out because they can't handle it. And we can't really separate or divide any of these three priorities. They have to all work together, sort of like a three-legged stool, sort of like a triangle. Commitment to Christ, commitment to the church, commitment to the work of Christ in the world. Now, you've probably seen a statue called The Thinker by Rodin. It's this muscular, nude figure who sits in intense contemplation. He's twisted kind of awkwardly because he puts his right elbow on his left knee. And Rodin said of the work, and I quote, what makes the thinker think is that he thinks not only with his brain, but with his knitted brow, his distended nostrils and compressed lips, but with every muscle of his arms, back and legs, with his clenched fist and gripping toes. If you've ever seen the statue, see a picture of the statue, you'll see his toes are really gripping into the stone. But the question is, what is the thinker thinking about? What's he thinking about so intensely? Well, the thinker was originally conceived as the central figure at a monumental art exhibition called The The Gates of Hell. According to the artist, he is sitting in mute amazement as he contemplates his own eternal destiny and the destiny of those who might walk past him through the gates. He is thinking about the big rock issues in life, what's really important. God brings change in us as we begin to think about what our priorities are. As we begin to get our priorities straight, as we begin to take on his worldview so that what is important to Jesus should also be important to us. That what we think about, the big rocks first, progressive commitment to Christ, to his church, and then to the work of Christ in the world. Management expert Stephen Covey, he writes, anything less than a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. Did you get that? Anything less than a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. Ask yourself, what are the big big rocks in my life? Are your priorities the same as Jesus's priorities? We are so much like the student who said, I know what it means. It means you can work it really hard. You can cram more and more into the little crevices of your life. You know, we might laugh at that because that's us trying to fit more and more in, trying to shake the jar a little bit harder, get a little more sand in, see if that's the way to fill up our lives. You know, in the words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, what he's saying is remember the big rocks first. There will be room for all the sand and all the gravel and all the water. It's going to fill up. But seek first those big rocks, because if you don't, you'll never get them in. We'll fill our lives unconsciously with sand and gravel and never find the power, the presence, the peace, the strength, the purpose, and the witness to the world that God really desires when we take on his priorities. Have a great week.